And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to get right into the message this morning because we have a lot to cover. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 17 will be our text this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, As the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May God richly bless his word this morning. This, brothers and sisters, here is Paul's testimony. And in a nutshell, what Paul is saying here is that I am a big sinner, but Jesus is a bigger Savior. That's his testimony here. And and translated to us, here's the big idea that I want to get across this morning, the sermon in a nutshell, and it's this, the gospel-shaped church or the gospel-shaped Christian is one, is a person who, who continually sees oneself, sees yourself as a big sinner and Jesus as a bigger Savior. That's the message here in this text. And so what I want to do this morning, my simple outline, is I want to explain this big idea. I want to unpack it from this text. And then secondly, I'm going to support the main point with some men who are much smarter than I am from from the past. And then third, I'm going to address some objections that have come or will come to your mind as we go throughout the message this morning. So first, here is an explanation of this this main idea that that I'm deriving here from this passage, that the gospel shapes the church, the gospel shapes the Christian into a person who continually— You ongoing, you see yourself as a big sinner. Big sinner. 
and Jesus as a bigger Savior. Now, as we read this text, something strikes me odd about Paul's words here. He doesn't say that he was the chief of sinners. He says that he is. Present tense, the chief of sinners. Look at it with me in verse 15. He says, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am, right now, present tense, foremost of all. Now this, to me, seems very odd. It's odd because you would think, I think, that in the natural course of events, the, the older Paul would be a little more holy, a little more godly, a little more sanctified than the earlier Paul. You'd think the older Paul would be a little better than, than the earlier Paul. After all, when Paul wrote this book of 1 Timothy, he had already written Thessalonians and Galatians, Corinthians, oh, and Romans, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. And if you read those texts, it's like, wow, amazing text. So how could he say he was the chief of sinners? Well, maybe Paul was getting old and getting a little senile. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. Maybe, maybe Paul had a self-esteem problem. You think that was Paul's problem? Did Paul have a self-esteem problem? Paul had already stated Look what he says in verse 13. He already knows. He has stated his sins clearly. He says, I was a formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. These were Paul's sins. He was clear about this. But yet, he says, he is the chief of sinners right now. And this is why I think this is odd it's odd because there's this weird sort of, sort of dynamic, this weird sort of role, this weird sort of um, state we find ourselves in, in as Christians. And that is, that is what I have said, that, that the gospel, when it comes to us, and we embrace it for the first time, it doesn't leave us there. It, it shapes us so that we continually... We, we ongoing see ourselves as big sinners and Jesus as a bigger Savior. It's, it's not that we somehow start to see ourselves as we were big sinners. No, we, we are right now. Even after all of these years maybe of being a Christian. This is, this is the odd dynamic of the Christian life. I could state it like this in a positive way, okay? And, and it's this. It's simply what I'm saying is this. The more we grow as believers, the more we see our need to grow. Does that make sense? The more we grow, the more we see our need to grow. 
Or I could state it negatively. We cannot grow spiritually if we do not see our need to grow. It's, it's incumbent upon growing to, to see our need. Let me use a personal illustration that I think would make this a little more relevant. So when I graduated from high school, I thought I knew pretty much everything there was to know. I'm a high school graduate, right? And, you know, I was proud about that, and I thought I knew a lot. Well, I literally remember getting to my freshman year of college, and it was like the, the world was opened up to me. And I start to see, slowly but surely, all the things that I still had to learn. And the teachers outlined those on the syllabus. <laughs> this is what you're going to learn as we go through the class. The point is, is that I saw my need to grow. I saw it. And what was that a sign of? That was a sign of my intellectual growth, right? So when, when you become a Christian, when I become a Christian, what happens to us is that God doesn't leave us stagnant. The gospel shapes us as a church, as a Christian, to continually see ourselves as big sinners, but Jesus as a bigger Savior. Now, I'm using this word big and bigger deliberately to communicate something important that I see in this text. In this text, we see comparisons. We see contrast that Paul paints here. And this is why I use the language of big and bigger. That language of big and bigger is language of comparison and contrast. Right? So look with me here at this comparison. Verse 14, Paul talks about the grace of our Lord was, what does he say? It was more than abundant. You see that? Look at verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Foremost. That's language of comparison, right? Or contrast. And in verse 16, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, there he says it again, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his, and here it is, here's the word of comparison, his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Right? So, this is why I say the gospel shapes you into a person who continually sees yourself as a big sinner, but Jesus as a bigger Savior because here is here's the deal. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Seeing your sin... And my sin, seeing who we really are in God's eyes, in biblical terms, is all about comparison. It's all about contrast. Okay, let me, let me explain for you what I mean by using an illustration. And I've used this illustration here before. There was a, a young girl, and she lived on her daddy's sheep farm. My father grew up on a sheep farm, and so um, there's this girl... 
She lived on her daddy's sheep farm, and she loved to play outside, and so she went out the back of her door, and in the back of her yard, she could see on the hill, off on the hill, she could see all of her dad's sheep on the hill. And as she was playing out there one day, she looked at those sheep, and she said, wow, I wonder why the sheep look so clean today. Why are they so clean? Did did daddy bring them into the barn and did he hose them down? Is that why they look so clean today? And of course, with a little girl, it was like a passing fleeting thought. And then she just went right on and and, um, was playing in, in the yard. She went to bed that night. And that night it snowed. Right? So they got six inches of snow, and the snow covered the ground completely, and she loved the snow. So she got up the next morning, and she went outside, and she started to play in the snow, and she then looked at the hill. She looked at her daddy's sheep, and she noticed something about those sheep. What she noticed was the sheep now today looked dirty. And she wondered what happened to the sheep. How did they get so dirty overnight? Did they get, end up playing with the pigs? <laughs> right? No, sheep don't do that, right? Typically, right? Why were the sheep dirty? The sheep were dirty because she was comparing the sheep to the background, to the backdrop of the pure white snow. That's why the sheep were dirty. You see, the sheep hadn't changed at all. It was nothing about the sheep. It was all about the background of day one of the brown dirt and day two of the pure white snow. And so that is how it works in the Christian life. That is how it works in coming to Christ. When we see our sin, we always see it in light of a backdrop. And you know what that backdrop is? That backdrop is the righteousness, the holiness of God. We are only sinners because God is holy. He is holy and because he is holy, that's how we compare ourselves. We compare ourselves to him. And when we compare ourselves to him, not our other fellow members in this church, not our neighbors, right? Not a big CEO type person, right? Not anyone else. When we compare ourselves to God and his holiness, we see ourselves in that moment as big sinners. We do, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there as Christians, Right? Because if we stop there with we're big sinners, then that would be utterly de- defeating and, and, and depressing and, and destruction. Right? We go on to see that yes, I am a big sinner, but Jesus is a bigger Savior. And so the Christian life, it works like this the Christian life is not primarily about you getting better. The Christian life is primarily about Jesus getting bigger. It's not about you getting better. It's about Jesus getting bigger. And when he does become bigger, 
in your eyes, in your heart, then the irony of it is, is that you do get better. You do grow. You do become more and more like Christ. Or I could say it like this. When your sin is small, you need a small Savior. But when your sin is big, you need a big Savior. Small sin equals small Savior. Big sin equals big Savior. And and this is what Paul means. The more and more I grow in my Christian life, the more and more Jesus gets bigger in my eyes. Look what he says in verse 13. The second half of it, he says, he says, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And, and the grace of our Lord Jesus was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. I was this big sinner, but wow, look what I found. I found in the Lord Jesus Christ grace that is greater than all of my sin. That's what I found in him. And he communicates this again in verse 16. Look at it with me. Yet for this reason, he says, I found mercy. So that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul In other words, he recognized that he was such a great sinner so that Jesus Christ would what? So that he would demonstrate his perfect patience, his perfect grace against the backdrop of sinful Paul. The point, brothers and sisters, is that when you see your waywardness, when you see your rebellion, when you see your transgression, when you see your sin, when you see that, you are gaining an accurate picture of yourself. And when you gain an accurate picture of yourself, then you can see an accurate picture of Jesus. This is how the Christian life works. You see, Jesus is not fundamentally a good teacher who teaches good moral lessons for us that we must follow. That's not what Christianity is about. Jesus is a good teacher. He's the best teacher. Jesus also isn't, he's also not a a life coach. And, And yes, there is a certain element to him that he is that. And he does lead us and guide us. And he does pick us up as it were when we are fallen down. But Jesus is not fundamentally a teacher or a life coach. Jesus is a Savior who bled for our sins. And you only get to him not by going to hear his teaching, not by following his coaching. You only get to him through the cross. 
That's how you get to Jesus. You get to him through the cross. The the Puritan Thomas Watson once said that unless your sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. It's so true. Unless our sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So the gospel, it shapes you and me into a person who continually sees ourselves as a big sinner, but Jesus as a bigger Savior. Now, the final part I want to explain here is why I say it's the gospel that is shaping you. And, and you remember, we're in this series now, the third message in this series in 1 Timothy. And the book of 1 Timothy was written, as we saw in the first sermon, to show the church in Ephesus, and subsequently to show us how a church is shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does the fact that he has been revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached on in the world, believed on in the world, gone out in the world, ascended into heaven, what does that do to the church? It shapes us, as Paul says. It shapes us to be a certain way. And that's why Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Because the church had gotten off course. It had, it had succumbed to some false teachers that had entered. And so, notice it is the gospel that is the actor here. It's Jesus who is the actor here. It's the triune God who is the actor here. It's not us. God is changing you, brothers and sisters. He is the one sanctifying you. It is him. Yes, we participate, but in a very real way, we are on the ride. We are on, on, the, on the road for the ride, as it were, in his great plan of redemption that he is doing in our lives. This is why Paul writes this, and this is why This is why Paul inserts his testimony here to show us what a gospel-shaped church looks like, to show us what a gospel-shaped Christian looks like. It's why Paul does that here. We're going to get to that here in a minute as I fill that out a little more. But secondly, that's the explanation. Secondly, what I want to do is I want want to support this idea from men that, that I respect, that you respect, Um, from the past. So listen to this first person, John Calvin, 500 years ago. He says this. Listen to what he says. He says, Scripture's whole end, the Scriptures, the whole end of Scripture is to restrain our pride, to humble us, to cast us down, and to utterly crush us. (laughs) Not so encouraging, huh? That's the point of Scripture. Why? Why? So that we see Jesus as bigger. A a century later, John Bunyan, John Bunyan, who um, authored such amazing books, including The Pilgrim's Progress, he said this, No sin against God can be little because it is against the great God. And you know what? Bunyan, in his life, he went on to, to write an autobiography. And do you know what that autobiography was titled? Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. 
A century later, Jonathan Edwards, here in America, he stated this. And and every time I read this, it always affects me. He says, it is affecting to me to think. It's affecting to me to think how ignorant I was when I first became a believer, when I first became a Christian. And he says, how ignorant I was of the bottomless, infinite depths of wickedness, pride, hypocrisy, and deceit left in my heart. That's what Jonathan Edwards recognized after years and years and years of being a believer. This was oblivious to all this in my heart. John Newton, sort of a contemporary of Edwards, he was a slave trader, and you know he's famous for Amazing Grace. He once wrote this, and this is what I want on my tombstone, by the way, just so you know. When I was young, I was sure of many things. There are only two things of which I am now sure. One is that I am a miserable sinner, and the other is that Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. Newton, who'd seen it all, I'm only sure of two things at the end of my life. John Charles Riley, 19th century preacher in England, He said this, the man whose soul is growing feels his own sinfulness and unworthiness more every year. That's the person whose soul is growing. And even our beloved go-to man, John MacArthur, he writes this, the mark of a mature life is not sinlessness, which is reserved for heaven, but the mark of of a mature life is a growing awareness of sinfulness. That's the mark of a mature life. Now, I can multiply example after example after example. And as I was studying for this, I came to realize that all these people are named John, and so you're, you don't have to be John to get this. <laughs> the point is that all these theologians confirm this truth that the gospel shaped church. Brothers and sisters, this is what we want to be. We want to be a church where we continually see ourselves in this way. That we are big sinners. But that Jesus is a bigger Savior. That's what we want to be. And the gospel is shaping us in that way. Now before I close, let me, let me offer three things that you may be thinking about right now. Number one, is what you've just said is really discouraging. Like, where's the encouragement to this message? Maybe you're thinking that, right? So I suppose what I've said could be discouraging. Certainly when you experience a fresh, a freshness of your own sinfulness, it's not encouraging at all. As Shakespeare says, few love to hear the sins they love to act if you love to hear the sins they love to act. It's so true. But, but let me give you an example from my own life that I think you can relate to. Okay? So, so I have the opportunity to, to pastor here, um, to shepherd you, to be among you at this church. And one sermon I remember a few years ago, I, I, I preached this sermon and I distinctively remember that after I was done, on Monday morning, I was, I was discouraged, right? They always say, don't call a pastor on Monday, 
right? But um, I was discouraged because, because I felt that the sermon didn't go well. And so when I got home from work that night, I shared with my wife that what I was thinking, that I was, that I was feeling discouraged and why I was feeling discouraged. And, and she said something to me to the effect, in a loving and godly way, which only she can do. I would not have the, the patience to say it like this, but she said this to me and just kind of like went on. She said, you think your sermon didn't go well? That's a proud thought. And, and I just kind of like <laughs> was like floored and I just like, I couldn't say anything. And I think, you know, we went on our way and, and, and I thought about it and I'm like, that's, at first I was kind of like, you know, like, but I was like, that's so true. That's so true because God rescued me in that moment and he reminded me of something that I've read about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis talks about pride in his famous book, Mere Christianity. And he talks about how we think about pride as those people that are arrogant and, and self-righteous and, and kind of think they know it all. Those are the pri- proud people. But then there's people who are like self-abathing and loathing and, and you know, just you know, sort of think of themselves as the scum of the earth and, and they're not proud at all. They've got another problem. And what Lewis says is that it's not only the former that are proud, it's, it's the latter. And he says that because he says pride, pride is, is thinking too much of yourself. And humility is not thinking of yourself at all. And the problem with both people is they're thinking too much of themselves. And what I was doing in that moment was I was thinking too much of myself. I was thinking too much of how I did and how it was received. And then, and then unfortunately, I, I didn't sort of snap out of it. I then became discouraged again. Because not for the first way of being discouraged, but then I became discouraged because for thinking that, that my sermon didn't go well in the first place. And, and being proud about that, right? That's why I became discouraged again. And, and then, thankfully, the Lord, the Lord rescued me from myself, and I quickly realized the truth of this message. So here's my point. Seeing your own sin, seeing who you truly are, can be discouraging, but only if you stay there. You're not supposed to stay there. You're meant to go to Jesus. That's why you see your sin, so you will cry out to him and go to him. So let me ask you, are you discouraged this morning? Did you come in here this morning kind of discouraging because you have been confronted with a fresh reality of who you really are, in yourself. Is that who you are today? Maybe you've been reminded of how far you fall short. Maybe in your marriage, you're having some marriage conflict, and it's just reminding you of, of you are a sinner, 
and in need of a Savior. Or maybe you're battling an ongoing besetting sin in your life. Maybe you're dealing with some relational conflict. I don't know. I don't know all of you what is happening in all each individual's life this morning. But seeing your sin is meant you to point you to Jesus. It is meant to see you that yes, you are a sinner, but you have the best of saviors. And this is why, as I said earlier, this is why Paul inserts his testimony right here in this place. It almost seems out of place if you're reading starting in verse 1. But when you think about it and you really study it, it's not out of place. Why? Because the church in Ephesus was dealing with these false teachers that have come from within. And Paul, as we learned last time, says, Timothy, you need to, you need to teach, instruct these men to use the law, and proper, the law and gospel properly. Remember, that's what we saw last time, right? That's what the problem was with these false teachers. And then Paul inserts his testimony here as an example of one who is seeing himself in the right way, in the proper way. Paul, in essence, is using the law and gospel properly. He is looking to the law and he is seeing in a mirror, as we do with the law, I am a big sinner. I am the chief. I am the foremost. But in spite of my sin, I have a big Savior. And that's the gospel. Look what he says. He writes this in verse 16. He says, For this reason I found mercy. I'm giving my testimony here for this reason, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate, he might be an example of his perfect patience as an example for those, the church in Ephesus, who would believe in him for eternal life. So he's giving this, as I said, he's giving this testimony as an example. As an example of what it is to live in light of the law and gospel and using that properly. So let me summarize. If you are feeling your wretchedness, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice that you have a big Savior. Second objection, that I think what you're saying might lead to more sin. Right? And, and again, this goes back to the law and gospel and distinguishing them. Separating, not separating them, but distinguishing them. Right? And, and the reasoning goes like this. And this reasoning was picked up by Paul when he, was, when he was explaining this free, amazing grace that is offered to us such wretched sinners. He talks to the Romans and he, he unpacks God's amazing grace and he anticipates their objection, which I'm doing today. And to paraphrase Romans, to paraphrase the book of Romans, should we continue to sin? So that God's grace and the gospel may be bigger and bigger and bigger in our eyes? What does Paul say? May it never be. May it never be. You see, the logic goes like this. I need to see more and more of my sin because I need to see more and more of Jesus. Right? 
the logic is good, but, but it's not valid at all. It's completely wrong. It's completely wrong. Here's the thing. The Bible calls us. The Bible calls us to turn from our sin, to hate our sin, to forsake our sin, to repent of our sin, to confess our sin. All these things, it never calls us, you know what, let's engage in sin so that you can see Jesus as a bigger Savior. It never does that. The reality of it is, is though we're called to repent, kill, forsake, confess, on and on and on, though we're called to do that, we still sin as believers. We still fall so far short. It's not a matter of if, it's always a matter of when. And when we do sin in word, in thought, in deed, not only should we repent, but this gives us this opportunity to see Jesus as bigger and bigger again. It's this weird dynamic in the Christian life. It's this weird sort of dynamic And you think that, yeah, we're supposed to get better. But what happens is that you grow in your Christian life. God peels away the onion of your heart. Our hearts are like onions, I like to say. Onions have layers to them, and so does your heart. And as you grow in the Christian life, what God is doing is he's peeling that onion back further and further and further and further to further conform you from the inside out to Jesus Christ. That's what he wants to do to make you like his son. So the point is, is that this big idea does not lead to sin. It does not lead to sin. Yes, it leads to recognizing, to feeling, to seeing more and more of the depths contained in your heart, but it doesn't leave you there. It leads you to Jesus. Finally, third, what I want to say is that maybe some of you are thinking that this picture is inaccurate to the Bible. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that we're new creatures in Christ Jesus? I've actually had someone say to me, you know what, Dan? You and Christians are always so negative. You're always talking about your sin and how you fall short of a God and his standards. That's what you're always talking about. Let me say to that objection that the problem with it is it poses a false dilemma. (laughs) Right? It says that either I'm a sinner or I'm a saint. And biblically, we are both saints and sinners at the same time. The Bible presents us as saints. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. And what that means is before God, in your legal standing right now, when he sees you, he sees pure, unadulterated righteousness. You are 100% clean in God's eyes. And, and, And therefore, there is no condemnation to you who are in Christ Jesus. That's how God sees you right now. Yet at the same time, our hearts, our minds, our wills need to be continually transformed according to the word of God. We have not arrived yet. And thus, what I like to say is that the biblical Christian life works in a cycle of sorts. What's the cycle? The cycle is we see our sin and thus we see how big it is 
and how far we shall fall short of God's glory and we repent of our sin. We confess our sin and we turn to God and we see his glory, the glorious Savior once again. And you know what? Then a minute later, an hour later, whenever it is, we sin again and the cycle repeats again and again and again and again and again all the way until God calls us to glory. That's the cycle. So the picture of the Christian life is, is accurate. We need to see ourselves as sinners and as saints. We are sinners, big sinners, but we are saints because of the work of ourselves. To put it in the language of Lewis, we should not have a high view of ourselves. We should not have a low view of ourselves. We should have a biblical view of ourselves. Now, let me ask you this morning, how does, how does this help you today? How does what I said help you today? Think about it for a moment. How does it help you? Let me, let me help you with this. It helps you because... This, what I've said, is where we live the Christian life. We continually see ourselves as big sinners and Jesus as a bigger Savior. So what this means is that when you go to work tomorrow morning, when you raise your family, when you attend church, when you hang out with your friends, you live in this dynamic you live there. And I think knowing that we live there and knowing that it's okay helps immensely. It helps immensely. That yes, I am a big sinner, but Jesus is a bigger Savior. What it does is it brings perspective. It brings perspective to all that you do. So when you are parenting your children and you do raise your voice when you shouldn't, you don't try to make it up to them. You don't try to make it up to God. You say, honey, bud, forgive me. I am such a sinner. I shouldn't have yelled at you. I am so thankful that I have a Savior who covers my sin. And then you move on. Or when you offend your spouse for the thousandth time, you don't say something that you should. Or you say something that you shouldn't. Or whatever it is for you, this brings perspective. It brings perspective so you don't have to wallow in your sin. Or you don't have to conversely beat yourself up. And sort of, I got to make it up to God now. Whatever that looks like for you. So let me ask you this morning. Let me bring this to a conclusion and ask you. When, I'm serious about this. When was the last time you admitted a sin? When? Actually, let me take it a little, a little step further. When was the last time that you repented of sin? 
Let me take it even deeper. When was the last time that you felt broken over your sin? Let me take it finally a step further. When was the last time you felt utterly undone by your sin? If it has been a while, be concerned. Be concerned. Because the Christian life is about seeing yourself as a big sinner, as the chief of sinners, and Jesus as a bigger Savior. And it's no wonder then, it's no wonder that Paul breaks out in praise. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said to that message, Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, who is so real and honest with his life. And Lord, how his life is, has been given, as we saw in verse 16, as an example for those who would believe on you for eternal life. And so, Lord, we want to be a church that is shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to be a church where we see ourselves as big sinners, but Jesus as a bigger Savior. Lord, that's what we want to be. Lord, we pray that we would boast only in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and none other. And Father, we come to you as sinners, as those who are broken, and we ask, Lord, we intercede for others. Lord, first of all, we want to intercede for all those who are in authority, for rulers and governors. Lord, we ask for our president and vice president, for the cabinet, for Congress, for state governors, for state senators and representatives, and the mayor of Lakeville and Lakeville's leaders, oh, Father, we pray that you would guide and direct all of them. Lord, direct all of them according to your holy will so that we together may lead God-fearing lives that are peaceful and that bear the marks of godliness and dignity as we see here in the book of 1 Timothy. 
Lord, we also want to lift up to you those who are persecuted, those who are suffering. Lord, we especially pray for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria. Lord, for my friends, Ishaya and Jonathan. Lord, serving you in northern Nigeria and eastern Nigeria, Father, I pray for these dear brothers. Father, would you protect them even this very hour? Protect them from those who would kidnap them to keep them for ransom money. Protect them from the Islamic extremists who want to kill them and set up the Islamic State. Father, would you be with those in Nigeria? Oh God, would you overturn the government that is corrupt and letting extremism flourish? God, would you protect these believers that are there? Oh God, be merciful to them. Help them endure. Help them endure to the end. Lord, keep them until the end. As we're going to read here in the next section about those who have fallen away, Lord, oh, pray that they would not fall away. Lord, that you would truly keep your believers until the end. And Lord, we pray for our Musa and our faithful men in Sierra Leone. Lord, we know right now Sierra Leone is undergoing some, some hostility. People are rioting. People are upset with the government. And there are violent demonstrations and protests. And Lord, we pray that this would not spread any further than it has. We pray that you would protect our brothers there who are training right now as we speak. Who are going out and training other pastors how to understand your word. How to interpret your word rightly. Oh God, would you be with them and fill them with your spirit. Give them the spirit of wisdom and knowledge to communicate the principles of your word clearly and accurately with all boldness. And Father, we finally pray for those amongst us who are persecuted, those amongst us who are suffering. Lord, we think of our brothers Mike and Colton, Lord, and others who are suffering, not to the same degree, but we pray that for them, Lord, we pray that you would be to them a balm, you would be to them um, life, Encourage their hearts, Father. Encourage them with the truth of this message. Encourage them with the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Lord, that they would see themselves as we have learned this morning. And Father, may you answer these prayers all according to your good, wise, and holy will. For the sake of Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.